Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. Today is Wednesday the 7th of the 7th. I am here with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been since Sunday? I have been okay, Gary. Um, how have you been? I've been pretty good. I've been reading up on Bohemian Glass. Have you really? Well, I'll tell you, it's a very good thing to be reading up on. In the in, in my in my time, I used to collect, once upon a time, glassware and Bohemian, 19th century Bohemian glass. Absolutely beautiful. In fact, Trisha Black glassware going back many hundreds of years. Principally responsible for the uh, revivification of glass production in Watford, you know. The, it was the Bohemians. That's actually why I was looking into it. Oh, yes. Because there's all this news recently about Ivanovacic's uh, grandfather. Oh, yes. And the national treasure. Ivana was on the telly. She was, and she was talking about how her grandfather was a factory owner, and he'd been captured by the Nazis, and then he had been uh, released, and he'd fled the communists. And I thought it was interesting, so I started looking into her grandfather, who there was very little information publicly available about, and that led to reading quite a lot about uh, bohemian glass manufacturing. Uh, actually, it's quite an interesting story from what I've read so far. Well, glass itself is fascinating. You know, one of the... There is a theory that one of the reasons why Europe ends up jumping ahead of the East in technology and science and ultimately uh, in industrialization and wealth creation is because in China they never really developed uh, high quality glassware. Because their China was so good, their production of China and pottery and ceramics was so advanced and so beautiful and so wonderful, they never bothered much with glass. Whereas, but glass is really important, to, well, for, for example, for making lenses. And the use of lenses, well, extends the lifespan of academics and intellectuals, makes them more fruitful. But also, just in generally, in the, the precision you need for certain kinds of techniques or certain kinds of activities, you, you have to have magnification, you have to have lenses. Also, obviously, for things like astronomy and whatever, well, anyway, for a whole variety of reasons, that glass is and particularly high quality glass is required for all sorts of things that we don't think about and may have been a central reason why china having led the world in technology for 2000 years ends up lagging behind that little bit of the world that hangs off the uh, eurasian uh, landmass in in the atlantic that's why we got well not the only reason there are other reasons but glass certainly was part of it and it looks like in during world war Two, some of the czechoslovakian or bohemian at that time glass works were used for the manufacture of you know gun sites stuff like that yes of course it would have been but it was the, the bohemian protectors rather a nasty place i would imagine to have been because the boss was hydric wasn't it blonde beast was rather a thorough uh, uh, well as nazis went even uh, who had a reputation for thoroughness he was very thorough indeed the english and the czechs Tempted to assassinate him, but didn't quite get away with it, didn't they? And it, which led to a mass horrible re reactionary repression. And I think it was it was in the context of the attempted assassination of Heydrich that the village of Lidice was extirpated. What I what I found interesting about uh, Ivana's grandfather, uh, Carol Batrick, was that he goes into the war maybe owning one factory. It's unclear if he got his first factory before or after. Uh, the Nazis came in, but leaves the war with four factories. Right, four. Yeah, which is interesting because you can say many things about the Nazis, Michael, but usually they weren't fond 
of allowing those who uh, were against them to succeed in business? No. So uh, presumably he must have had to live a kind of a double life. Well, that's the odd thing. Ivanovacic has said he was arrested for a year and a half for being a member of the resistance, which would make owning glass factories quite difficult. But also I looked into the, um, I found a fascinating book, Michael, called Austrian Banks in the Period of National Socialism. God, I never put it down. It- oh, it's a page turner. <laughs> What's interesting is that the company who had owned one of the the glassworks that he was meant to have bought, the first glassworks he was meant to have bought, in the late 1930s, that company was found to be majority Jew-owned. So the state of Austria seized the majority of shares in the company, and the company was what you would call Aryanized. Right, yes. So it was a company called Schreiber and Neffen, Schreiber. Jay Schreiber and Nephews, I think. And somehow, uh, Avana's grandfather ended up owning one of the glass works that they had owned. And I can't, I can't quite work out if he got it before the Nazis seized those shares or after or what happened there. It's, it's quite unclear, but it's interesting. Well, I mean, we should remember, uh, Oscar Schindler boss the Emilian Faber, uh, enamel works in Krakow as well. After it had been, uh, how would we say, Aryanized, or whatever the the, the the version of that was, in the Protectorate in Krakow, it was a it was a, a funny and complicated time, and hard to hard to track these things down. But um, he ends up with four factors at the end. That's that's an, a year and a half in prison as a suspected partisan. That can't be fun. I mean, you have to imagine that it's not going to be not going to be a gentle experience being a Czech partisan for a year and a half, and they never shot him. Yeah, no, I, I I will continue looking into it because I'm particularly interested in, at the very earliest, this guy gets his first factory in 1938. And then by the end of the war, spends a year and a half in prison, isn't Shah, and then has four factories by the end of it. That must be a very interesting life. Not only just to, to get the four factories, but to get the four factories when you've been jailed as a partisan. But he obviously must have convinced them, he, in some way, he must have been able to convince them that he wasn't a a partisan because otherwise he wouldn't have got out and he wouldn't have survived it um he, he must have been able to in some way get around them convince them otherwise to get out and once out i suppose that would be the stamp of non-partisan of you know reasonable citizen because other they couldn't admit otherwise so that might imply that they had made a mistake and he flees Czechoslovakia in 46. Someone around then, yeah. Well, the Russians are already there, aren't they? The Russians, inverted commas, liberate Czechoslovakia. Yeah, some of the sources I found say that his factories had been nationalised by that point, and some seem to suggest he feared they would be nationalised, and also the the, the communists were uh, conducting reprisals against um, anti-Nazi partisans. Right. Which they did do to a certain degree. Not all of the partisans, but some of them the communists did crack down on after the war. But you saw that all over Europe. I mean, some of the nastiest internecine fighting in Italy, when you had the various, you had the communists and the social democrats and the Catholic partisans, and they didn't get on well. In Greece, in the Balkans, even in, Par- in, even in France, the, the, shall we say the political distinctions between the various partisan groups was, could be pretty nasty indeed, and especially when the Russians came in the non-communist partisans tend to get the rough end of the stick. So anyway, the, the, this comes up in the book on the Austrian banking system because one of the Austrian banks 
was interested in the shares because they owned a glass company and they wanted to acquire this company, uh, Jay Scriber and uh, nephews. And uh, it's actually quite interesting because we completely, like, people know about Soviet bureaucracy and that it was this nightmarish Byzantine mess. But Nazi bureaucracy actually kind of gave it a run for its money because the company was declared Jewish uh, even after the state had taken the uh, shares away from all of the Jews who had them, which made things a bit difficult. Yeah, anything you read about the Nazis, the operations and the functionings of the Nazi state, make it clear that it was an absolute nightmare of parallel and often incoherent or contradictory regulation. But also, it was a characteristic of the way that Hitler uh, ran the gaff. Hitler was famously uninterested in the practices of government. In comparison, say, to Stalin, Stalin was enormously prepared. Stalin read voluminously. Stalin knew the details of all of the stats from everything across the whole of the Soviet Union. Hitler knew almost nothing, didn't care, and set up his little local satrapies with party officials at different levels, both within the state and then within the regions, constantly in competition with each other. And that is a nightmare if you're trying to get stuff through a bureaucracy, where you have one bureaucracy competing with another for power, which means that both <laughs> they're both trying to stop you, put in their own different ways. But they're going to be the one to stop you first, because that's the function of bureaucracies: stop, not organization, but uh, stopping people doing things. And the Nazis seem to be have been particularly good at that, unless you are, of course, connected. Well, then you got stuff done. But if you're just the ordinary Joe Soap trying to get stuff done, nightmare. Yeah, so it's actually quite interesting in the book. It, like it's a state bank trying to convince people that the company is not Jewish, as the state bank has held the shares for a year, working on the assumption that someone inside the bureaucracy doesn't like them and is just trying to slow this down. And so the company is Jewish until that person decides they've had enough. Hmm. Yeah, so I, I strongly recommend Austrian Banks in the Period of National Socialism by Gerald Fieldman. It's a page turner, folks. You know, just don't start it in bed because you'll be up all night. You just won't be able to put it down. So, that, yes, the reason this had come up was because Ivana was talking about her uh, grandfather. And she's talking about her grandfather because Ortie decided to rear a program in which she had talked about her grandfather and her family history and the little treasures of her life. And this was, what, recorded two years ago? And Orty decided to rebroadcast it there the other day? Yeah, I loved the uh, Orty response, which was very much with the head down and beating the breast because they had sinned through their own most grievous fault. But they said it was an inadvertent error, Gary. I, I don't know why, but I really enjoy the inadvertent there. It seems to imply that RT is engaged in all sorts of advertent errors around the place. This was an inadvertent error, as opposed to those occasions when we have advertent errors. Maybe it's to indicate that it's both an error and just a push that we didn't do this deliberately. Really didn't, really, you know, lads, don't go thinking just because Ivana is the Labour Party candidate running second in the by-election which is being held tomorrow, that this should be in any way connected, because it's not. It was just one of those one of those programming decisions that was probably taken ages ago, even before they even knew there was this going on. I mean, yes, it's the sort of program which people in Dublin Bay South may find, uh, you know, very endearing and might make them like a candidate more. But, you know, these things happen. 
on one hand, I can see RTE doing this and not realising what they're doing. On the other hand, there has been not even an undertone, Michael, but um, the media seems to be a little bit shoulder to the grindstone, let's get Ivana elected. Oh, it's been all shoulders to the wheel. It absolutely has. They have been coming out of the woods and the woodwork to to get Ivana in. She she is much beloved by that section of sort of the middle and the upper middle classes, professionals, government types, NGO types, who tend to inhabit the Labour Party, and significant swathes of South Dublin. She is very much that kind of moderate left-wing progressive, more progressive than left-wing possibly in some ways, uh, in the classic sort of class sense of Labour Party politics. And they, they cannot get their heads around how this is the fourth, is it the fourth, this is the fourth attempt, is it? That Ivana has at getting a seat in the door, fourth different constituency, I think, as well, possibly. And they, it's, it's, sleeves have been rolled up, Gary, palms have been spat upon and rubbed, shovels have been got out and pickaxes. We are getting the job done this time. Some of the reporting has been, abs- I mean, did you see the hat- well, hatchet job is maybe overstating it because, well, it wasn't that heavy or that sharp, but that Lamolali uh, did on Gagan. I did. It was, it was, it was utterly unsurprising. I do. The only thing I enjoyed about it was this presentation of Gagan as totally unworthy of his position, and then this sort of whereas look at these other options like Ivana Batchik. Man, look at Ivana. Look at how lovely. My favourite media piece on this was a piece by Jennifer Bray in the Irish Times. So the Irish Times had done an article, uh, Cormac McQuinn, I think, wrote it, called Canvassing with Ivana Batrick. And the quote, the headline was Canvassing with Ivana Batrick. Quote, she's been a wonderful worker, really. But the, the canvassing <laughs> with Finna Fáil one, the headline is, Canvassing with Finna Fáil. Quote, Ivana's nice, but she was voted in by Trinity graduates. And the entire start of the article is about how great Ivana Batrick is. <laughs> Yeah, that's good stuff. And it's it's about uh, Conroy going up to someone and that person being like, oh, I'm voting for Ivana. It's wonderful. You know, this, this is a demonstration, Gary, of what a lot of people in the business will understand this, that for, for comedy to really work, you have to commit to the bit. And that's an example of somebody who's really committed to the bit. Okay, they may be out canvassing with Fianna Fáil, but they are going to get in the first two paragraphs about Ivana, because that's what we want. Yeah, even this complaint from Fine Gael to RTE, which led to RTE apologising, because Fine Gael had said, you know, it's blatantly unfair to air a programme like that two or three days before an election, you know, clearly has the potential to bias something. And even the responses to that, because a lot of the papers have run that RTE is apologised, and it's just all of these smiling photos of Ivana Batchik everywhere. Yeah. It, it does, there's a scene in The Simpsons where, I think it's Lisa, uh, is talking to Mr. Burns about some political campaign he's running, and the line is uttered, Mr. Burns, your campaign seems to have the momentum of a runaway train. Why are you so popular? <laughs> <laughs> and it just reminds me yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, I remember that, Kent. Thank you for that tough question, Kent. <laughs> it, oh, it, it is. It's it's a, it's a thing of beauty. It is an absolutely thing of beauty. Having said that, at the current polling, it looks like Batrick will likely take it on transfers. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's look at that um, first. No, I'm polling. No, the the, the last poll that I'm aware. I don't know if it was the only poll was done, was the Ipsos MRBI Irish Times poll that was done in the 
27th of June, the last day of polling. And it has Gagan 5% ahead of Bacic on first preferences. Now, the first thing is the usual quibble, Gary, is the sample size is 553. So the margin of error is going to be larger than you'd expect on a sample size over a thousand. Correct? Is that right? Uh, yes. Yeah. So you'd have to say, look, no, the interesting thing when you, in the polling, when you look at the second and third preferences, the person that sub, that does best, which again is not surprising because this is very typical, especially in a constituency like this, is the Green Party do best on second preferences, the burn from the Green Party getting 25% of the second preferences, Bacic 19, Gagan 15. And then third preferences again, burn 25%, Bacic 16%, Gagan 10%. So, and burn, the Green Party candidate, has already come out and asked voters to give second preference to Labour. Yeah, well, to Labour or to Ivana? Well, I think, I think more exactly Ivana. I think it'll be interesting to see how Byrne does. I mean, Michael, they're, they're barely out-polling Fianna Fáil. They're only, yeah, barely. That's a, I, I love that sentence, by the way. The Green Party <laughs> is barely out-polling Fianna Fáil. Yeah. That's just a, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah, you, 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 there's something for everybody in that. There is something for everybody there. But they are. Conroy is on 10% uh, for Fianna Fáil. Byrne is on 11 I I don't, I have a... A notion, a positive notion, Gary, that maybe Byrne could do a bit better than that. And if Byrne was to do a little bit better and Ivana was to do a little bit worse, that could throw the whole thing up in the air. Of course, the the great unknown in this is Boylan. Now, as it stands uh, on this poll, Boylan and Sinn Féin is on 13%. This does not look like the kind of constituency where you would expect Sinn Féin to do massively well. But your expectations these days, Gary, we don't know. And there have been other, shall we say, there have been word of other polls going around where Boylan is on considerably more than 13%. But, you know, those polls always exist. How about this? I've heard a number of people articulate the idea that in a constituency like this, with a candidate like Boylan for Sinn Féin, you may get some shy Tories. Shy, shy Tory, for those who don't know. Back in 1992, the polls consistently underestimated the vote that John Major eventually got. And the reason that was postulated or speculated about was the idea that there are people who had decided they were going to vote Tory, but were a bit embarrassed about admitting to the fact to pollsters. So that kind of, uh, shall we say, embarrassed voter is called, we call them a shy Tory. And there is a, a theory circulating amongst people who are trying to make this by-election even more exciting than it already is that actually Boylan may be the beneficiary of a shy Tory vote, that there are people in this constituency who wouldn't like to admit they're going to vote for Sinn Féin, but actually, you know, in the end of the day, will. That would actually be quite bad for Bacic if that were to happen. Interestingly enough, when you look at like Sinn Féin uh, voter transfers, a lot of Sinn Féin voters don't transfer. Historically, uh, there, there, were, there was a disproportionate number of plumpers of Sinn Féin voters, they would vote number one Sinn Féin and then just stop. Which is perfectly fine, perfectly entitled to do it. It just means in this case, those are votes that are not going to Havana in that case. When you look at the thing laid out, 27% for Gagan does not seem to be enough, does it? The way the transfers are going to go out. The Greens are always going to be transfer friendly. And I think that Batchich in this constituency 
is going to be very transfer friendly. Where are those field fall votes going to go, do you think? 10% of the, there's going to be enough of them to make a difference. I haven't, I don't know. It seems to me if you're put up by side by side, they're more likely, substantially, I'd say substantially more likely to go to Gagan than to Bacic, which is a funny old world. Leaving aside that speculation. So let's speculate further. At the moment, on the poll, Gagan is five points ahead of Bacic on the first preferences. I don't think that's enough the way the transfer is going to shake out. Well, I mean, the poll is the polls are also two weeks out of date at least, and they would have probably been three weeks when you look at when the poll was done, maybe more. Gagan has been under pretty sustained media attacks consistently over that period. Absolutely. Yeah, he has. But do you not get the feeling in the last, just in the last few days, that it's got to the point that people actually have started to notice that he's under this continuum? And it's actually, it's seeping into the commentary in the media, in social media already, but certain, but even in the print media now, people are starting to, to write about the fact that he has been the object. So that may, at the end of the last week, turn out not to have been as effective as they had hoped it to be. Because once people start noticing you're doing these things, they start to not like it. Well, we will see. Uh, we will see shortly anyway. The election is tomorrow. And um, it's going to be good fun. If you're going to have your £5 on it, who would you have your £5 on? See, the problem here is that by current polling, assuming the Irish Times poll is correct, you would expect Batchik to take it on transfers. However, if we're going on previous history, Batchik doesn't win. Batchik never wins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, there's, there's a truth to that. And... And also on previous history, in this constituency, Finnegale wins. I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know. Because I don't know how it's been in the constituency over the last week. Batchik, I think, is Batchik. Some people find her CV deeply impressive. I don't. I think Batchik is the greatest argument against uh, party choice selection of political candidates that this island has uh, ever produced. She is an absolute stalwart supporter of quotas and indeed super quotas um, when it comes to elections, not just local but national as well. But she she does have a constituency there, people who really like Ivana Batrick. And there's there's a traditional prof- read professor of laws, read professors of law going on to some success, Mary Robinson and Mary McAleese being two examples. I'm interested to see how Deirdre Conroy does. Yes, and so am I. John McGurk is, is, is working on a current theory that Deirdre Conroy was picked because she is so bad a candidate she can be blamed rather than Fianna Fáil. I think that's a risky strategy. I would like, I, I think if you're Fianna Fáil really, you bite the bullet, you pick the best person you can and you pray to God you get more than 12%. And if you beat the Greens, you call it a victory. And I think that if you were, if, if, I don't know if this person actually is a bad candidate or that bad a candidate. I know there have been people speculating around that. But if this poll is halfway right and there's only one point between Fianna Fáil and the Greens in this constituency that would suggest that a really good candidate, should they be able to find one, would have been pushed them over, pushed them into fourth place. And fourth place here would be a seat. I would also say that we're basing this on polling. I think about polling. There was a poll in the middle of June in the Irish Times 
And uh, that poll said that the majority of people in Ireland would be happy to see new housing built beside them. Yes. And that people also believed it should be harder to block housing developments. Now, that's a poll that's just not right. <laughs> well, it's. I don't think it's, it's not right. It's just, you have to understand, I absolutely agree with people being allowed to build houses beside me. In theory... What I really, but I, what I mean is, I believe that in the right of people to be built to build houses beside you in practice, and I think the houses should be built everywhere, beside everybody else except me, because you see, Gary, there are very special and particular reasons why the houses shouldn't be built beside me, and if it weren't for those very special and particular reasons, then I would be absolutely in favour of people building houses beside me. Because I'm a good person, I want people to build houses. So it's not that it's wrong; it's just that it's it lacks a bit of nuance underneath that people have to get. Of course, I'm in favour of housing. I, I would be in favour of housing beside me, except for these very special, very special conditions that pertain, and probably only pertain beside me and nowhere else in the country. So yes, polling is what it is, and it is. By the time this has gone on. 20th of June is probably when this polling started, so it's a while. I think the one thing that maybe she'll benefit from is the sense that people are getting a bit pissed off when the restaurants didn't open and the pubs didn't open. And this is a constituency which dines out. Interesting enough, there is an article from uh, Simon Harris in today's Irish Times saying we need Dublin-based South to elect a government TD and asking Fianna Fáil to give their votes to James Gagan. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that, 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 that'll work. That'll happen. Why don't they all just agree to give their vote to uh, that nice Green Party TD? Well, no, I, I think, I think it's, it's just, you know, it just shows how close the links are between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil now. Yeah. That in does. all of Micheál Martin's time as leader, we've now gotten to the, sure you're fucked anyway, give us your votes. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, you're not going to do anything with them anyway, lads. You might, like, let's, you let's be honest here. You're not at this race. You're not, you're not doing this. This is an old story. On positive stories, actually. And towards a man we haven't said much positive things about, I don't think. Malcolm Byrne. Yeah, well done, Malcolm. Malcolm Byrne came out in the, uh, the Shannad at this point two days ago and started talking about Chinese genocide. And uh, how we needed a conversation about how we work with the Chinese. Yeah, I mean, and to be fair to the Malk, he did not put a tooth in it. He accused the Chinese Communist Party of carrying out a genocide, he uses the word, against the Uyghur people, persecuting practitioners of Falun Gong, and crushing press and free legal freedoms in Hong Kong. Talked about the concentration camps set up in Xinjiang. Richard O'Halloran he talked about. Yeah, Richard. Oh God, which was, I mean, even more surprising because for some reason that man has become this, he has been memory hold, hasn't he? Well, he's a bit uncomfortable for people. More so than Abram, what was, Ab, 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 was, I can't remember the chap's first name, Mr. Hawalawi, who was out canvassing, actually, in Dublin South. You see those photographs? Oh, who is he canvassing for? I believe Ivana. I asked, but I knew. <laughs> You're an awful man. Well, he got very involved with the NGOs after he got out. 
and the NGOs are only going to go one direction on this. Uh, one thing I thought Byrne asked for that was quite interesting. He said the government should go further and support other countries that have been calling for the Beijing Winter Olympics to be moved from Beijing. On ideas that will not be popular with the Chinese Communist Party, that's right up there. I think that's actually a very important thing. Not to get into sort of certain crude racial stereotypes, but this is not. But prestige is important to the uh, to the party in China very much, and for them to lose the Olympics, the Winter Olympics, would be such a public loss of face, a loss of prestige, a rebuke. They would, I think, they would be very, very annoyed. I mean, if you were looking, I thought that was a, that, that was a, that was a, a, an intelligent and rather clever thing to, if you wanted to, that is, if your purpose is to annoy uh, the Chinese, that's a very good thing to, uh, that was a very good thing to, to, to go for, a clever thing to, to support. Um, of course, uh, what the reaction will be is the question. I mean, that's what the Chinese are relying on, isn't it? That individual countries won't act on the basis that the rep the potential for retribution from China on individual countries could be so terrible that no one country will will, will react. The Australians are in experiencing that now. The only way this might work is if it's done in concert uh, at an international level. Many many countries working together. Yeah, we've seen the we've seen the EU. There are at least people within the EU willing to talk more openly about this. The last while, I think China overstepped slightly because the last uh, while, the last year, has seen them begin to individually sanction MEPs for saying things about China that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't like. Yeah. And once that happens, once you start individually targeting MEPs, you're going to find other MEPs are suddenly far more willing to attack you. They don't like that sort of thing. No, uh, having relied on threats, uh, sort of vagues and general threats of economic uh, retaliation, they got, I think they made a misstep in a few, in a few case, cases. I'm sure the Chinese, terribly concerned with my opinion of their approach to diplomacy. But anyway, uh, I think they've made a misstep in, they have two things. They've specifically targeted individual, individual parliamentarians in the EU and other ways. And also, they have ratcheted up the language regarding the outcomes for countries that don't basically bow down and submit. And the language has become rather, well, imperial, Gary, frankly. Back, you know, hearkening back to the, the days of the mandate of heaven. And I think it has begun to strike people that these people seem to have a problem. They are... Okay, they, everybody who is that big and that many people and that powerful and that influential, they get to be a bit arrogant, but these people seem to be getting a little bit too arrogant. Like, it's all going to their head. Uh, one interesting thing I've noticed about the Chinese embassy in Ireland, Michael, certain stories only get published in English on their website, and certain stories only get published in Chinese on their website. Right. And it seems to be from the Google Translate job I've run on some of the Chinese ones, that uh, there is very much a home audience and an Irish audience. And those audiences want very different things. Hmm. Oh, right. Your home audience, you mean like a home in China? Yes. Is there a difference in tone? 
well, the tone is very different, but it's also the type of stories they're interested in. The Chinese stories are much more aggressive, much more, you know, to the point. Whereas the Irish stories or the English stories tend to be a lot more lovely. And lots of embassies do similar things. But with China, it's it's quite a remarkable split. But anyway, well done to Malcolm Byrne. Uh, shout out to Malcolm. Congratulations, Adam, for particularly for taking a shot at the Irish Times. Oh yes, that was that was a bit snarky, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, he says he hopes the Irish Times gives as much attention in its editorials to the Chinese Communist Party as it does in its advertising from the Chinese Communist Party. Hmm. Well, you know, Michael, if you don't want to be called out in Parliament, maybe don't print a full-page ad of Chinese state propaganda. Especially as we discussed previously, having refused a similar ad from the Hungarian government because it would have been government propaganda and at odds with our values. Unless your values are making money, in which case, you know, like, you think they would have taken both then? Exactly. The lack of consistency, Gary, that's all we ever look for in life. It's just a little bit of consistency. It's the hypocrisy. That's the worst thing. <laughs> Why do you do that to me? So anyway, I think we will be back on Friday again. If we haven't been washed away in the thunder storms and lightning floods that we have been promised. I have more information on Bohemian glass manufacturing at that point. And possibly, I, mean, I think all the listeners would like to hear more stories about Austrian banking. I certainly know. I think I, on the edge of the seat. I drew, the line I drew was at purchasing a book called something like, oh yes, The Legend of Bohemian Glass by Antonin Langhammer. That was where I drew the line. That book is like $300. But I, I, was, I was looking at the, you know, and you can see the, the, the previews on Google. And if you preview it on Google, it contains the line, it's, ta- and it's obviously about glass manufacturers. After the war, he was forced to flee the country due to suspicion that he had collaborated with the Nazis. And then the name isn't in the preview. <laughs> Do I want to spend $300 to find this name? To find out who the hell that was, yeah. Do I want $300? No, $300. The answer to that is no. No, like, okay, it's a glass factory owner in Bohemia who had to flee because he was collaborating with the Nazis. But who is it? The thing about that is, Gary, this is the reason why you should join the library and then get them to order the book. Yeah, yeah. It may take a little time, but it saves you $300. Anyway, we'll be back on Friday. Bye-bye. Bye.